to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. There has been a lot of news this week, as always. The historic peace treaty between the United States and the Taliban that may or may not be worth the paper it was written on, and a third round of elections in Israel that finally had a winner. Third time's the charm? Maybe. The stock market that took a major tumble and caused a lot of heartburn for so many people. And then there were the Democrat candidates for president who ended their campaigns and threw their support to Joe Biden just before Super Tuesday which makes us think that maybe this is the result of a concerted effort on the part of the DNC to stop Bernie Sanders. And there was much more. But the headlines of yesterday, terrorism, elections at home and abroad, international news, even politics and the stock market, are rapidly starting to play second fiddle to the one big story in the news today that is going to affect all of us one way or another. And that is the virus, the one they call COVID-19. It doesn't make the top of the news every day. But these days, there is always news of one kind or another about this virus. Now, on last week's show, I promised that I would devote this week's Friedman Report entirely to COVID-19. And that's what I'm going to do because more than any other story, this one is likely to affect America in ways we still don't fully understand. And that has a lot of people worried. So the purpose of today's program is to give you some answers. In the first part of the program, we'll talk about the virus in China, how it started, how it became such a problem so fast. Then in the second segment of the program, we'll talk about how the virus is spreading around the world, how different countries are dealing with it, and how it affects us here in the U.S., And then in the last segment, we'll talk about what we need to know to keep ourselves and our families and our communities as safe as possible. So please stay tuned, and we'll cover it all. Now, before I begin, I just want to tell you a few things. In the world of intelligence, that's my world, when the subject is complicated or difficult to explain or understand, or even bizarre, as I think this one is, it is really very easy to call an analyst a conspiracy theorist. So let me start by telling you something that I hope may ease your mind on that score. When I bring you the latest news, nothing I tell you is made up, ever. And it doesn't come from rumors or unverified sources. I'm an intelligence analyst. And what I do is to acquire intelligence from highly respected and reliable sources. And then I analyze it in order to make sense of the bits and pieces that I hope will fit together like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. It's what we call connecting the dots. And I've been doing that for many years. Now, if I can say this without sounding pompous, over the years, my analyses have been almost always correct. And that's because my sources vet their intelligence very carefully. And because I do a lot of research on my own to confirm what I've been told and to connect the dots. And all that is so I can give you the truth about complex and often confusing issues. And by the way, many people ask me this, I don't work for the government. 
and I don't deal in what is called classified intelligence. Did you know that almost 95% of all intelligence comes from what they called open sources? That means that the information is not classified and, in theory, anyone can access and use it. You just have to know where to find it and how to use it. And one last thing. Some of what I tell you may be new to you. That's because, although it is not classified, it is also not generally public knowledge. The mainstream media is not sharing some of it, or they may not know it, or believe it, or want to share it if it is politically opposed to their agenda. For example, if a piece of news is favorable to President Trump and the mainstream media does not want to present that, they may ignore it. And our leaders in the government agencies and even in the private sectors do not really understand some of the strange dynamics of what we're about to face, and they seem to be trying to shield us from information that might help us prepare for it, maybe because they're afraid we might panic if we knew the truth. And honestly, they might really believe that we cannot handle the truth. Well, I don't believe that. I know that my listeners are smart and savvy. You know that it is knowledge that will keep us safe and secure. That's why you listen. So now that I've told you all that, let's get on with the story of COVID-19. This virus is likely to be the worst public health crisis since the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, which killed somewhere between 50 and 100 million people worldwide. And although we could learn some lessons from the Spanish flu, we don't seem to be doing it. We'll talk more about that later. The reason that the flu of 1918 is important is that it killed so many people, including, according to the CDC, about 675,000 people in the United States. Of course, much less was known about viruses back then, and in 1918, much of the world was involved in World War I. So the disease spread through a distracted and a weakened population. Today, the world is not engaged in a global war, but it is smaller because of the technology that allows us to travel halfway around the world within a matter of hours and therefore transfer diseases much more easily. And so, one by one, the list of countries where the virus is spreading is growing longer and longer. Today, the virus has been found in at least 62 countries that we know of, and on every continent except Antarctica. So let's start at the beginning. This virus, the COVID-19, began, as we all know, in China. We don't know much about the origins of this nasty virus, but what we do know is that Wuhan was its original epicenter, and that's where our story today begins. When we first heard about it, the virus was already raging in Wuhan. To the best of our knowledge, it began sometime in the second half of November or the first half of December. Stories differ, and honestly, when it started is not the most important part of the story. We originally heard that it had begun in an open-air meat market where live and dead animals, particularly exotic ones, were sold. The Chinese government first said that it probably came from bats, which are carriers that can spread disease without actually being sick themselves. 
They used bats, I think, because they are commonly used in that part of China for what the Chinese consider to be delicious soup. Then they said it might have come from the scaly anteater, also a delicacy in central China. So after announcing all this, the government announced also that they had closed down the open meat market and hoped that that would be the end of it. It wasn't, of course, not even close, because the virus had begun to spread rapidly throughout China and beyond its borders. And the idea that such an epidemic could have been caused by bat soup was pretty well debunked. Then another theory began to appear that is now starting to be considered quite credible by a growing number of experts. And it's one that I wrote about over a month ago in an America Out Loud article called, quote, What is China Hiding? The Real Story About the Coronavirus, unquote. The short version of this story, that is most likely to be the true story, is that the virus was being developed in what the Chinese government called the Level 4 Biosafety Laboratory known as the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but would have been better described as a bioweapons laboratory because, according to my sources, that is what COVID-19 was designed to be, a bioweapon to be used against China's perceived enemies. The Level 4 laboratory in question that was built in Wuhan went online in January 2018. A press release that was published in Xinhua Net, also known as the New China News, which is the official state-run press agency of the People's Republic of China, it said, quote, China has opened its first biosafety level 4 laboratory capable of conducting experiments with highly pathogenic microorganisms. Level 4 is the highest biosafety level used for diagnostic work and research on easily transmitted pathogens, which can cause fatal disease, including Ebola virus. The Wuhan P4 lab will conduct research in antivirus drugs and vaccines, unquote. In other words, its mission, according to the Chinese government, was to study viruses like Ebola and SARS and come up with drugs to combat them. But according to highly reliable intelligence, they did more than just study the SARS virus, they weaponized it, and they did not develop a drug to combat it. What they did do was to make the virus more powerful, faster to mutate, easier to spread, and as we have recently learned, this virus can resist the body's normal ability to create antibodies to viruses so that a so-called cured person could actually reinfect himself, a kind of boomerang effect. And then, even before the virus erupts again and shows symptoms, that person could keep infecting other people. Whether the lab actually had the technology to achieve all of these characteristics, or whether they instead just gave it the ability to reinvent itself, to mutate into something different from what it was when it started, we just don't know yet. But what we do know is that the virus is something we need to know much more about and China isn't the least bit interested in telling us exactly what they have done. In fact, they have prevented American scientists from coming to ground zero in Wuhan to try to find out what happened so that they can better seek a solution, a vaccine, a cure for this virus. And there is even a report out that says that the Chinese have destroyed the lab 
so that we may never know exactly what happened or what the original virus looked like. In any case, in late November or early December, there was an accident in the lab and the virus escaped. My sources have told me, based on some first-person accounts, that it was an accident, but some sources now report that it was intentional. We may never know, and honestly, it really doesn't matter how it happened. What matters is what happened next. China could have immediately put measures in place to limit the spread, measures they finally put in place a month later when it was already too late. They could have informed the world, and certainly their trading partners, and particularly the United States with whom they were about to sign a massive trade agreement. They did none of these things. From the beginning, the Chinese government was more concerned about covering up what they had done than in saving the world from the nightmare of a global pandemic. And the first victims of their virus were the Chinese people. The virus spread like wildfire throughout the country and then to other countries. The consequences are now affecting the entire world. We still don't know the actual numbers of Chinese sick and dead from the COVID-19 virus because the Chinese government will not tell us. Their official numbers are ridiculously low considering the vast number of deaths that are being reported unofficially. At first, the Chinese government tried to deal with the virus quietly, as I said, as they continued to negotiate with the United States on the massive U.S.-China trade deal. They tried to treat the sick and punish those who talked about the virus on the Internet. But the videos started appearing, showing hospital corridors jammed with panicking people seeking medical help for themselves and their family members, and of people collapsing in the street, and the bodies in shrouds lined up along the sidewalk. The Internet buzzed with the comments of chat rooms about what was really going on in Wuhan. The Chinese government tried to hide the news of the spreading disease, and they punished anyone in China who reported it or even discussed it online. In fact, even the doctor who discovered it could not escape their notice when he tried to warn fellow doctors by using their chat room to post ideas about how to protect themselves when they were treating patients with this virus, even he was punished. He and the seven other doctors that he warned were called to the police and were forced to sign a letter saying they had been spreading, quote, misinformation, unquote. He himself, who was only 34 years old, died only a few weeks later from the virus. So COVID-19 spread rapidly, and China continued to lie about the number of sick and dead. Most recent estimates are officially in the tens of thousands, but unofficial reports suggest that the real number is in the millions. And the math supports it. In Wuhan alone, the deaths began to mount so rapidly after the virus began that when the dead became too many to bury, the government began to cremate them. There are believed to be 74 crematoria in Wuhan, and all of them began working around the clock 24-7 to cremate the bodies of the dead. It was reported that each crematorium burned more than 100 bodies a day until at least three of them broke down because of overwork, and then the government began to use mobile incinerators. Now, of course, not all the dead succumbed to the virus. Some people died of other illnesses, accidents, and just old age. But the vast number of dead were victims of the virus and their bodies were burned to try to contain the spread. In late January, the government closed the city of Wuhan completely, quarantined the people in their homes, cut off all transportation links into the city, including blocking the main streets and stopping trains and planes from going in and out. They also started building 
huge 1,000-bed hospitals to house the sick and dying. And that was just in Wuhan, which was ground zero for the COVID-19 virus, but was far from the only place where the disease was taking such a terrible toll. The number of sick and dead was growing throughout China and beyond. As I record this week's show, there are at least 62 countries around the globe with cases of this virus, and it is still spreading. There is no effective treatment that we know of, and more than that, we don't even know exactly what we're dealing with or what this virus is capable of because the virus is not a natural product of nature that we might possibly understand. Now I'm going to take a quick break, but I will be back and we'll finish up this section about China and move on to the international spread of the COVID-19 virus. How it's spreading, where it's spreading to, and how they're dealing with it as they try to fight what has become a global pandemic. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L, dot com slash sleep. So let's talk a little bit about the virus itself. Now, you may already know some of this, but some of it may be also new, and it is all important. Was it really cooked up in a bioweapons lab? Well, the Xinhua News Agency, the official state-run news outlet for the People's Republic of China, they reported that late last month, the central government sent its top military biological weapons expert to take over the laboratory in Wuhan. This supports the idea that there is a lot more to this theory of a military connection than meets the eye, or than the Chinese government would like us to know. According to the report, Shen Wei, who is a major general of the People's Liberation Army, was flown into Wuhan to officially take over the Wuhan Institute of Virology. There's also a report, as I mentioned before, that the original work on the virus, which would reveal the manipulation of the virus by scientists and lab technicians, was destroyed so that it could not be detected by non-Chinese scientists who might enter the country to study the virus. Remember that Wuhan is, well, well was, a major industrial and commercial city, as well as a tourist attraction, with a population of more than 11 million people. In early November, it was a major center of commerce and industry for all of central China, the capital of Hubei province. But today, it is nearly a ghost town. Currently, there are 91,313 confirmed cases in Wuhan, 
and 3,118 reported deaths. These are the official numbers. Everything that I know about this indicates that the true numbers are really much, much higher. China is a country led by an elite group of people who rule its population of 1.4 billion people with an iron fist. And because the Chinese government wanted to achieve global dominance, they felt threatened by the United States and were determined to defeat us in a race for global supremacy. So they embarked on a program of biowarfare to be possibly used against us. When we first heard about the new coronavirus, it was only a problem in China, and we knew very little about it. And then we started to hear stories about how it was spreading, not only in China, but to other countries. On December 31, 2019, Chinese authorities reported to the World Health Organization that they were experiencing a rash of pneumonia cases in Wuhan City, Hubei province, with an unknown cause. It was, in fact, what we now call COVID-19, and it was already starting to spread far beyond Wuhan into other parts of China. This warning, this announcement, was far too little, far too late. More than that, the Chinese New Year on January 25th, and for the two weeks that followed, was less than a month away. This is the time of year when the Chinese people travel throughout the country and abroad. And remember that this virus can be asymptomatic for as long as two or three weeks. So as the travelers went from place to place, if they had been exposed, they could be passing on the virus to others and never realize it. The Chinese played down the possibility of spreading the illness and so did the rest of the world. And by the time the holiday had begun, millions of Chinese travelers were scattered around the globe enjoying their vacations and people were still downplaying the severity of the potential outbreak. In Wuhan alone, five million people were on the move. Most of them were in other places in China, but there were quite a few, many of them, thousands of them, who were traveling around the world, many to the United States. By the end of January, it was already known that the virus could be spread by one person to another. Remember, they originally thought it came from animals in the exotic meat market. Whether or not the animal-to-human spread had any truth to it is not clear. The reality was, though, that it is now known that the major threat was human to human. No less important was the fact that the virus could be asymptomatic for so long, but could nevertheless be contagious during that period. So by the end of January, it was already known that the danger of a pandemic was real and maybe imminent. The first report of the virus infecting someone outside of China showed up in Thailand on January 13th, followed by 25 other countries including Japan, South Korea, France, Australia, Canada, and the United States. By the end of January, 
there was an undeclared pandemic. And by the beginning of March, at least 68 countries had confirmed cases. Outside of China, the most heavily impacted countries are South Korea, that now has over 5,000 documented cases, Italy, with over 1,600, and Iran, with 2,336 cases of the virus, which have been confirmed by a less than reliable government, and 77 people who have been confirmed dead. In Iran, the government itself is heavily infected. A close advisor to the Ayatollah has died from the virus, and 23 members of parliament have been reportedly infected. It has also been reported that the Ayatollah himself is now sick with it, but that remains unconfirmed. In the meantime, several men who videotaped themselves licking, yes, you heard that right, licking the gates or the walls or the plaques of the holy shrines in the holy Iranian city of Qam, now face 76 lashes and prison time as well. The custom of licking and kissing and touching the shrines is common in Qam, which in addition to being a holy city in this Shiite country, is also the epicenter of COVID-19. You can do the math. One man posted a video in which he licked the metal gate on one of the shrines and said, quote, I am licking and I don't care whatever happens, unquote. Well, what happens is that he risks getting the virus from this stupidity, and then he risks giving it to others as well. Still, although some steps have been taken to protect visitors to the shrines, no shrines have been closed to visitors. No wonder Qam has become the COVID-19 capital of Iran. And then there is Italy. On January 31st, two Chinese tourists in Rome tested positive for the COVID-19 virus. Within three weeks, there were 16 confirmed cases in northern Italy and an additional 60, 60, the following day. The first death from the virus occurred the same day. It was the third highest concentration of infections in a single country since the virus spread outside of China. And as of March 2nd, there are 2,036 confirmed cases in Italy and 525 people have died from the virus there. In South Korea, things are even worse. The first case was identified on January 20th, but the numbers quickly rose until as of March 2nd, less than six weeks later, there were 4,212 known cases, and by March 3rd, one day later, the number had jumped to over 5,000. The death toll as of that same day was 31, or 0.6%. Japan is also experiencing a sustained outbreak of community transmission. Now, community transmission occurs when someone comes down with the symptoms, but that someone hasn't been in China and hasn't been in contact with anybody who has been in China and doesn't know anybody who has traveled there. We simply don't know where the infection came from. 
As of March 3rd, Japan had 280 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and six deaths, or 2.14%. What is interesting about all these statistics is the disparity between the infections and the deaths reported. In South Korea, for example, the death toll represents, as I said, 0.6%. But in Italy, the death rate is nearly 25%. So here's a question. Why? Are there already different strains of the virus that are more or less lethal? Do the people in South Korea have an immunity of sorts that makes the virus less lethal there? Is healthcare better in South Korea than in Italy? What accounts for the high death rate in Italy and the low death rate in South Korea? We don't have the answers to these questions, not yet. But when we get them, they may help to explain how this virus behaves and how we can solve the threat that it poses. But for now, the official numbers are these. 3,049 people have already died from this virus in 68 countries worldwide, which far exceeds the death toll of the SARS outbreak in 2002, in which at least 774 people had died by June 2003. The most suspect numbers, of course, are the ones from China, where their official count is 80,026 infected and 2,912 who have died as a result of the virus. I've already told you what I think of the numbers coming out of China. I think they are grossly underrepresented, and if my sources are correct, the numbers are in the millions, not in the thousands. But never mind, for the time being, these are the numbers that we have. Other suspect reports come from North Korea and Iran. And in the meantime, let's take a look at the U.S. Unlike other countries, the United States has seen a rise in cases, but one that is relatively slow compared to other countries. On March 3rd, the total number of confirmed COVID-19 cases exceeded 100 and nine deaths, all of which happened in Washington state. But in spite of this, both the Trump administration and the World Health Organization are saying that the threat is manageable. To begin with, President Trump kept much of the threat at bay when he banned travel to and from China and banned travelers who had been in China within the previous 14 days. This was a bold decision on the president's part, and he knew that he would get some nasty blowback because of it. He was called a racist and a lot of other very unpleasant things, but he saw the threat of COVID-19 and he acted on it anyway. There are many experts in the field of microbiology who think he made the right decision and that he may have kept thousands of people here from being exposed to the virus. There is too much we don't know about this virus. We don't know how it mutates, what triggers a mutation, and what decides what it will mutate into. And because we don't know these things, we have difficulty understanding the best ways in which to deal with it. In countries that are governed under authoritarian rule, the answer is simple and has less to do with science than power. In China, for example, they repress information and communication about the virus and what is happening there. They force people into quarantine or worse, 
forcibly remove them from their homes and put them into the newly built temporary 1,000-bed hospitals that the locals call death camps because the patients get very little medical care or even attention. And in Iran, the Ayatollah Khamenei thinks the whole thing has been overblown. He says, quote, the issue is an issue that will pass. It's not something extraordinary, unquote. And he told the Iranian people, quote, don't violate the recommendations and instructions of the responsible authorities in terms of prevention, in terms of keeping hands, faces, and living environment clean, and not infecting these, and preventing the infections of these, unquote. Deputy Health Minister Ali Reza Raisi said that 2,336 cases of coronavirus have been confirmed in Iran, and the number of dead from the virus has reached 77. If you want to believe those numbers, that's okay. I don't. And then we go to North Korea. On February 27th, it was reported that the first patient who showed signs of the virus in North Korea was simply shot dead. That sounds like something Kim Jong-un would do, but meanwhile, he declares that there are no cases of COVID-19 at all in North Korea. We do know that he has closed his borders and cut all transportation links with China, and because Kim is so afraid of catching the virus, he has not been seen in public since the end of January. Kim declares that there is no COVID-19 in North Korea, but the reality may be different. It appears that the government has been trying to get large quantities of disposable gowns, gloves, and hazmat suits, which suggests that they may actually have their own epidemic to deal with. Every country is trying to deal with the presence or fear of an epidemic. In the democratic West, the job is more complex because the head of state cannot simply lay down the law and prohibit all the country's citizens from leaving their homes or force them to go to work or shoot them dead if they don't agree to do so, and he can't silence their discussions or their criticism. There is a process in a democracy and laws that keep the leadership in check and give the citizens the right to dissent. But it doesn't seem to make a difference in the number of cases. In democratic Italy, the numbers are high. In despotic Iran, the numbers are also high. In democratic South Korea, the numbers of infected is astronomical while here in the United States, the numbers are still small. This is a challenge of biblical proportions, and the outcome will be fascinating for the scientists who will get to analyze it. But in the meantime, the virus continues to spread, and we here in the United States can be grateful that although we were unprepared for this, we live in a country where medical science is advanced and the controls that the government have put on incoming people from the worst affected countries may go a long way to keeping us relatively safe. And there's one more thing about living in a democracy. It's called responsibility. It's not enough for the people to sit back and wait for the government to help them out in an emergency. And it's not the role of the government to say, you go about your business and we'll take care of you and keep you safe. That's not it. Of course, the government has an important role to play. But it is also up to the people to take care of themselves, to protect themselves and their families in whatever way they can, even as the government tries to sort out the solutions that are its responsibility. So that's what we're going to talk about in the next segment. 
But it's time for another short break, so don't go away. When I come back, we'll talk about the situation right here in America, what is being done to keep us safe, and what we can all do to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. So here's some good news. Although the pandemic is spreading, it is, so far, not spreading very rapidly here in the United States. There are several reasons for this, but the fact that we are happily running behind in the numbers of people who have been infected, that's a good thing. It has given our scientists time and an opportunity to develop some of the solutions and some of the powerful weapons they need to fight this virus with. And there is also some potential good news from the laboratories in some of our allies as well. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 virus outbreak, the disease has spread around the globe, killing thousands and possibly millions if the Chinese numbers are as wrong as I think they are. A lot has been learned about this virus and what it does to people. But there is far too much that we still have to learn. So what do we really know about it? And what can we do to protect ourselves and our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, and our country? Well, the first thing to know, of course, is that it is extremely contagious. That's a no-brainer. We know that. From what we know right now, one infected person can be expected to infect from three to six other people. That is where quarantines, lockdowns, and self-isolation become important to stop the spread. We certainly don't want to do what China has done to their own people. Their draconian measures have included locking down very large cities and quarantining more than 56 million people at one blow, locking infected people in their homes, or worse, dragging them off by force to a thousand bed hospitals, these new prefab hospitals that they've built in two weeks that the people call death camps where they will receive minimal, if any, care. 
and then they burn the bodies of the dead and throw the ashes all together in large bins. There are no funerals for the dead, and all this is to stop the spread of a disease that should never have existed. We don't do that in America, and thank God for that. What we are now trying to do is to keep the COVID-19 from spreading here in the United States, and for the most part, the powers that be seem to be doing a good job. The real test, though, will come when things we need to beat this virus become available because we have funded the R&D and because we have found the solutions to the challenges that the Chinese scientists have given us. One of the things I think we need to do is to find partners in other countries to collaborate with our own scientists. There are scientists and technology wizards and biotech companies around the world whose knowledge could no doubt provide insight into the thorny problems that our scientists are struggling with as they try to beat COVID-19. Let me give you an example. A team of Israeli scientists right now think that they are on the verge of creating the first vaccine against COVID-19. They work in the Galilee Research Institute, known as MIGAL, and they've been working on developing a vaccine against an infectious bronchitis virus, which causes a bronchial disease in chickens. The vaccine has been proven effective in preclinical trials at the Veterinary Institute. But here's the interesting part. Miguel's biotechnology group leader, Dr. Hen Katz, explained it this way. He said, quote, our basic concept was to develop the technology and not specifically a vaccine for this kind or that kind of virus, unquote. In other words, they were looking at what technology would have what impact on what kind of virus. The scientific framework for the vaccine is based on a new protein expression vector, whatever that is, which causes the body to form antibodies against the virus. Now, we know what that is. In preclinical trials, the team demonstrated that this oral vaccination induces high levels of specific antibodies that will attack the virus. But how did they get there so fast? He said, let's call it pure luck. We decided to choose coronavirus as a model for our system just as a proof of concept for our technology, unquote. Well, how about that? They just happened to choose this virus that we are now being plagued with all around the world. It's a different genetic sequence, but the virus is the coronavirus, and that was maybe dumb luck, but it was good luck. So after they sequenced the DNA of the novel coronavirus, the COVID-19, they found that the poultry coronavirus is genetically similar to the human one and that it uses the same infection mechanism. That means that the chances of achieving a human vaccine in a very short period of time based on their work is highly possible. Here's what he said, quote, we're in the middle of the process of adjusting the system to the new sequence and hopefully in a few weeks, did you hear that? In a few weeks, we will have the vaccine in our hands. Yes, in a few weeks. If it all works, we would have a vaccine to prevent 
coronavirus, unquote. That's amazing. The group is currently in discussions with potential partners who could help them through the regulatory process and, and get the vaccine into production. This is the kind of opportunity that could flourish with a partnership. And I have no doubt that there are many such groups, small groups, working on big solutions. There is plenty of opportunity to create the tools we need to combat COVID-19 effectively and quickly. But what we need to do is what Israel is doing in this case. After the development is completed, they still have to go through a regulatory process, including clinical trials, and then gear up for large-scale production. The Israeli government is planning to fast-track all the approval processes with the goal of bringing the human vaccine to market as quickly as possible. The U.S. government agencies that control these approval processes need to think proactively and creatively to make that happen here as well. Our clinical trials are notoriously cumbersome, expensive, and can take years. In the case of COVID-19, we simply don't have that time. So partnering with a country that has a streamlined system and with whom we already have an excellent working relationship is an ideal situation. I didn't say it would be easy. Trying to change the habits of a huge government agency is never easy, darn near impossible. But in this case, it is urgent and it's also a good idea. And it's not just Israel who has the know-how. There are enormous R&D resources in a number of European countries. These kinds of partnerships have been proven to work extremely well. And it could just provide the solution we need to solve the COVID-19 pandemic. And it could also help solve the supply chain problems that have been created because of the COVID-19 virus. Because China is no longer able to produce these products for us. Given the short supply of essential items like masks, protective clothing, and so much more, these things are now unavailable in many parts of the world that desperately need them as the virus spreads. And this is a global problem. So if we can partner with other countries and with companies in other countries, we could solve some of these production problems much more quickly than we may be able to do on our own. But here's another idea. The president wants to build our own industries. So how about this? How about encouraging the companies that are running around the clock, trying to tool up to manufacture more, much more, of the masks and the protective clothing and the equipment needed to fight this virus and to beat it into the ground? The companies are already here. They just need to vastly expand their production to meet the current global need that was only a short time ago filled by China. How about that? So that's one part of the problem and a couple of possible solutions. But what do we do in the meantime? How do we protect ourselves and our families? How do we stay safe in our workplace? Well, it's mostly common sense, my friends and a bit of situational awareness. What are the first things you think of when you think of staying free of contamination by anything? The first thing is you need to know what you're dealing with. So 
here's a list of some things that I suggest that may help you get through all this. First of all, this little virus travels on droplets of whatever body fluid it finds, mucus, saliva, tears, and so forth. So the first thing you need to know is that it enters your body through your eyes, your nose, and your mouth. That's the reason for the masks if you choose to wear one. Then you can also get it by touching something that an infected person touched before you. Let's say he rubbed his eyes and then touched a counter, one that you touched after him. Did you know that this little virus can live on a hard surface for as long as nine days? So if you touch that counter even a week after he did and it hasn't been disinfected, and then you rub your eyes, well, you get the idea. So here's the deal. If you're worried about infecting yourself but you have to go out, put on a pair of surgical gloves so that when you touch something, it won't touch you. These surgical gloves come in big boxes so you can buy them in quantity and not be concerned about throwing them away after you use them because that's what you have to do before you go back into your home. That's what I do and it's worth it, not only for your safety but for your peace of mind. And on the other side of that, keep your hands away from your face. Really, don't rub your eyes. They say that the average person touches her face about 20 times an hour. Can you believe that? So you need to train yourself not to do that. Not so easy, but it will keep you from infecting yourself if you do get something contagious on your hands. And then wash your hands thoroughly and frequently with lots of soap or use hand sanitizer if you prefer. I read somewhere that most people when they wash their hands don't wash their thumbs or the web between their thumbs and the rest of their hands. I didn't believe it until I noticed how I washed my hands. The thumbs didn't get the same treatment as the rest of the hands. So I learned something and now I wash my thumbs as well as I wash my other fingers and the rest of my hands. See, never too late to teach an old dog new tricks. Woof! What else? Oh yes, I didn't like it when we were told to stop buying masks. Really? To the government folks who tell us that, go do your job. Get the wheels of industry moving and start making those things here instead of making them in China. China is no longer an option. We need masks too. So don't keep us from protecting ourselves. Make sure there are enough here so that we can all be safe. And having said that, if you are comfortable wearing a mask when you go out, it's an extra level of protection. So do it. You're not going to panic anyone in spite of what they say in Washington. And you'll feel safer. Good for you. And by the way, before I forget, the surgical masks that you see in the hospitals and on television, those will not block the COVID-19 virus. The mask you want to wear is rated N95 or N99. The N99 is a, a tighter mesh and it may be a little bit harder to breathe through, but both N95 and N99 will protect you. These are the ones that will block the virus. No, wait, let me qualify that. I, I said this wrong. 
the mask itself cannot stop the virus itself. The virus is teeny tiny. It will go through anything. What happens is that this teeny tiny virus can't travel on its own. It has to hitch a ride. It has to attach itself to a, a little droplet of some sort of liquid or mucus or saliva or something. And they grab onto that little droplet and that's what they travel on. So the mask will stop those little droplets and that's what you want. You want to make sure that this mask fits and it, you seal it along your chin line or along your skin line on a clean, hairless face. That means that if you have a full beard, guys, you're going to have to shave it off in order to wear one of these things. It's important because if you have gaps or if, it's, if the beard prevents you from having a tight seal on the mask, it won't work. Don't do that. Wear, if you're going to wear a mask, shave your beard off. It'll, the good thing about beards, like hair, it grows back. Just do it. So do your homework and get the right masks. And then don't be shy about wearing them. That's what you got them for. And I mentioned situational awareness before. That means being aware of what's going on around you. If you're in a store, for example, and you see a person sniffling or coughing near you, move. Get away from him and be somewhere else. The rule of thumb as put out by the government is to stay six feet away from anyone you suspect has symptoms of the virus. That means coughing, sneezing, sniffling, and so forth. It may just be a cold, but it may not. So keep your distance. If it means going to another line, that's not such a big deal, even if you have to wait a bit longer. <laughs> Consider the alternative. And finally... Don't panic. Don't be afraid. Keep living your life and be glad you're in America. We have options here, and the possibility of making a potentially bad situation feel a whole lot better. I think for myself, if I had to be anywhere in this world during a time like this, I'd be glad to be in the good old USA. Well, I guess our time is up today. Thank you for spending this hour with me. I hope it was useful to you. I hope you learned something. I know I learned a lot getting this show ready. You know, I, I do a lot of work to prepare for these shows. I do a lot of research and I, I, I make sure that I get my facts right. I do that so that I know that I'm giving you the information that's correct and the information that you need and want to know about what's going on in the world. Now, as always, if you have a comment or a question, if you want to say something, if you agree with me, if you don't agree with me, and you want to let me know, send me an email. Send it to Ilana at FriedmanReport.com. I want to wish you all a good week. Stay healthy, stay safe, and God bless. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.